Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Generally speaking, possession without application is useless. Possession without application is useless. I'm not going to ask how many of you have clothes in your closet that you haven't worn in years. But I know that some of us have. The question is, of what benefit is that to you? Or of what benefit is that to anyone else who might be able to use them? I surrendered to ministry 50 years ago. And at that time, I began to prepare myself for ministry. And one of the preparations was to begin reading books and purchasing books and receiving books that people wanted to give me uh, to help me understand the scriptures to help me understand pastoral ministry, to help me understand theology and philosophy of religion and all of those other intellectual disciplines. And over the course of 50 years, I've accumulated just a little north of 8,000 volumes in my personal library. And without a doubt, any time someone comes into my office, they look at my bookshelves, and that's about a third of the books that I had or did have. And they will ask invariably, have you read all of those books? And my response is, well, some of them I've read all of them, but I haven't read all of all of them. I've read parts chapters of each of them, uh, but I have opened the covers to all of those books and I've read bits and pieces, articles, chapters, and so on and so forth in all of the books that I have received. A couple of years ago, I decided it was time to go through my library and to weed out a lot of the books that I don't use anymore. And so I started doing that. And in the course of my going through the bookshelves and pulling books off, I, I found a book that I didn't recognize. Now usually when I walk into my library, and I'm going to make sure that my doors are locked after I tell you this, usually when I walk into my library, it doesn't take me very long to see that someone has borrowed a book without asking. Because I pretty much know every book that I have in my library. I know where it's at. I know what color it is. You know, I, that's just one of my idiosyncrasies. My dad said my idiot-syncrasies. But... Um, I didn't recognize this one book. And where did this book come from? And so I remember an individual saying, you know, if you've read all of these books, does that mean that you agree with all of them? I said, no, there are some books that, that I have read that I don't agree with. Well, why do you keep them? Well, because they, they profit me. I can benefit from them. Well, how do you benefit from them? Well, I saw this one book that I hadn't recognized, and, and I started to, uh, as I normally do, I look at the title, I look at the author, I look at the index, you know, I read, I read the preface, I read the introduction before I ever start reading uh, the text of the book, and I decided this was not a book that I really would benefit from. So I started just thumbing through the pages, and lo and behold, it was a book that I benefited from, because there was a $20 bill stuck between the pages of that book. Possession without application is useless. Do you have books on your bookshelves at home that you've never read? 
Of what benefit are those books to you if you've never read them? Of what benefit are those clothes to you if they hang in your closet and you don't wear them? We come to church, we listen to preaching and teaching in the sanctuary, on TV, on the radio. We attend Bible studies. We read scripture in our private and family devotions. But no amount of reading and no amount of memorizing and listening will do us any good unless we apply to our lives what we have learned. Thomas Sakempis wrote, quote, On the day of judgment it will be demanded of us not what we have read, but what we have done. End quote. It's the same thing that Jesus said, He who hears my words and does them not is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And when the storms come and the winds blow and the floodwaters rise up, that house falls because it was built on the sand. And of course, in that parable, the house is a person's life. The foundation is the truth of God. He went on to say, a wise man is an individual who builds his house upon the rock. He hears my word and he does my word. And he builds his house, his life, upon the bedrock, the truth of my word. And when the storms of life come, that life remains because it's firmly built on the rock. Information without application is useless. Possession without application is useless. Topsy Gift said this, quote, The power that knowledge possesses is hidden in the application. The power that knowledge possesses is hidden in the application. 28 years after meeting the resurrected Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and then spending some time in the Arabian wilderness learning the gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, Paul sat in a Roman jail and wrote this letter to the Philippian church. In the opening paragraphs of this letter, he made a profound and spiritually arresting statement. It's found in verse 21. Look at it. In this profound statement, he revealed the heart of his Christian faith. He uncovered the core of his knowledge and understanding of the gospel. For to me, he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a significant statement. It's an important statement. It's a revealing statement. Because for to me, to live is Christ is the cause for which to die is gain, is the effect. In other words, to die is gain is the direct result of to live for Christ. You can't have one without the other. Now as you know, in past weeks, we have suffered the loss of a number of our 
church family members in death. And it's interesting to see and to hear how we as a Christian family respond to the reality of death. And I am happy to say that for the most part our responses have been as they should be. While we grieve in our heart for the loss of a loved one, a friend, we rejoice in our spirit because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we have come to know that truth through personal experience. And so we do not grieve like those who have no hope, the Apostle Paul says. We rejoice in knowing where our dear brother or our dear sister is. And as the song was so beautifully sung, they're there standing around the throne of God with the saints who've gone on before us and that's where we will find them and that's where they will find us. Not grieving in some dark room, not lost in the back alleys of heaven, not occupying ourselves with a new mansion, redecorating and all that other kind of stuff. No, we'll be around the throne of God. Why? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I've said it a thousand times if I've said it once. It's all about Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And Paul could say, for me to live is Christ. What do you think of death? What do you think of death? Most people don't like to talk about it. They seldom prepare for it. They see it as an enemy of life and God's curse upon us for sin, but not the Apostle Paul. No. He looked forward to death. Look in verse 22 and verse 23. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Paul says, I want to remain here with you to minister to you and with you. I want to continue to assist you in your spiritual growth and development and the expansion of the kingdom of God. But my heart's desire is to be with Jesus in heaven. Is that your heart's desire this morning? And he says, deep within my spirit, I wrestle over this. I'm torn between the two. He says, but I would rather be with Jesus. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. For to me, he says, to live is Christ. This morning we're going to look at the first half of Paul's statement. And next Sunday, if God willing, we'll take a look at the last half of the statement. To die is gain. And so I would have us first note here, again in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. I would have us first to note... That for to me to live as Christ is a Christian's personal profession of faith. Personal profession of faith. Paul says, for to me, for to me to live as Christ. He's not talking about somebody else's faith. He's talking about his faith. He's not talking about someone else's experiences. He's talking about his experiences. He's not talking about other people's walk with Christ in life. He's talking about his walk with Christ in life. And he says, for to me, what life is really all about is Jesus. It's Jesus. 
It was his personal statement of faith. Now, understand, this is not a simple expression of faith. It's not a simple expression of faith. And it's not a catchphrase of theological truth. For to me, to live as Christ is the sumum bonum of who the Apostle Paul truly is. It's the highest expression of what he knows to be true in life. It's the core of his faith and the foundation upon which he has built his life. For to me, to live is Christ. Now, this personal profession of faith doesn't come through years of studying theology or religious philosophy or philosophy of religion. Absolutely not. This personal profession of faith came through and does for us today come through effort, years of effort and ministry and sacrifice and suffering in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, which many, sad to say, professed Christians abandon after the first few months or even years of their Christian profession. Listen. Listen to Paul's testimony. Right off the bat, following his conversion in Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 25, Paul's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ provoked the Jews in Damascus to the point they wanted to kill him. Forcing him to leave the city at night by being lowered over the city walls in a basket. He then went to Jerusalem to join the apostles as a young Christian. Several years in the Christian faith now, probably three or four years in the Christian faith. He goes to Jerusalem to join the apostles, but they would have nothing to do with him. They refused him because they didn't trust him. But there was Barnabas who took Paul under his wing and mentored him in Christian ministry. Later on, Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church in Antioch in Syria to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout Asia Minor. And so they set sail to start sharing the gospel of Jesus where the gospel of Jesus was not known. On the island of Cyprus, which was Barnabas's home island, his home was there on Cyprus. He rebuked Elimas, how we pronounce it here in the English, Elumas in the Greek. He rebuked Elumas, the false prophet, who was espousing false doctrine. Paul stood up to him and Paul rebuked him for spreading a false gospel. But at the same time, the proconsul of Cyprus, Sergius Paulus, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ through Paul and was saved. After many people came to faith in Jesus Christ in Antioch in Pisidia, the Jews got all stirred up and angry at Paul and ran him out of town. In Iconium, Paul preached the gospel and many people were saved, but the Jews and the Greeks threatened to kill him, so he left. After healing the lame man in Lustra, Paul was stoned and left for dead. He successfully defended the gospel by rebuking Judaizers from Judea, then became an important witness to the apostles at the council in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 16, in verses 11 through 40, Paul led many people to faith in Philippi, including a young lady by the name of Lydia, who was a seller of purple. But again, the Jews 
got upset at Paul for preaching the gospel and they beat him and they imprisoned him, but he was not to be deterred. He continued to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those in prison. And when the opportunity came, he was able to lead the Philippian jailer and his family to faith in Jesus. In Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 9, many people were saved in Thessalonica through the preaching of Paul. But the Jews incited a riot against Paul. And Paul had to leave the city for Berea. In Berea, Paul evangelized many people. But the Jews once again stirred up opposition and began to persecute Paul for preaching the gospel. And he had to leave Berea. He traveled on to Athens in Greece. And there the Greek philosophers mocked him and ridiculed him for his faith in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 17, Paul was arrested and brought before the Roman proconsul Gallio in Achaia for preaching the gospel. But Gallio was indifferent. He didn't care about this gospel that Paul was preaching. In Acts chapter 19, verse 9, verses 21 through 24, chapter 20, verses 18 through 19, in Ephesus, the apostle Paul encountered 12 disciples of John the Baptist, and he asked them if they had the Holy Spirit, and they said, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul gave these disciples of John the gospel. They were saved, and they received the Holy Spirit. But then he was persecuted because as he prepared to leave, to sail to Syria, the Jews formed a plot to kill him. And yet he escaped unharmed. In Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, Paul told the Ephesian pastors that he knew that trouble awaited him in Jerusalem because he was preparing to go back to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles there. But he told them he knew there was trouble there. And he knew he was going to face trouble as he did in nearly every city where he had gone and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And true to his word, as he was in Jerusalem, he was savagely beaten by a Jewish mob, arrested and thrown into prison. While in prison... A mob of some 40 Jews plotted to kill him. And so he was taken out of the Jewish prison in Jerusalem and carted off to Caesarea and imprisoned there. And he sat in prison in Caesarea for two years awaiting trial. And yet that trial never happened. In Acts chapter 27... And 28, Paul appealed his case to the Roman emperor. And so he set sail for Rome. He was nearly shipwrecked in a storm off the Isle of Clauda. And then he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta for three months. He then arrived safely in Rome and was again imprisoned for preaching the gospel. All of these things and many more things that uh, we, we could list... All of these things served to define in Paul's mind and heart and spirit what the true gospel of Jesus Christ really was. That gospel that had taken hold of him and changed his life radically, fearlessly, boldly for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's my second consideration for us this morning. For me, he said, to live is Christ. It reveals the motivation. It reveals the motivation in a Christian's life. It was the motivation in Paul's life. Now this again is not just a simple statement of the gospel, for me to live is Christ. You know, that that has become far too easy for Christians to say today. We can say these words to people without producing a shred of evidence to back it up. 
Many people call themselves Christian without really knowing what that means. Without really understanding the power inherent in that statement. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, look at that if you will please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Two Corinthians five, fourteen and fifteen. He says, For the love of Christ, for the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul said, this theology that we preach about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that impacts each and every one of us is motivated by the love of Christ for us and our love for Him. That word compel, that word compel is the same word that Paul used in Philippians 1 and verse 23 when he said that he was hard-pressed between continuing to minister here in the flesh, and leaving this life to be with Christ in heaven. He said he was hard-pressed. It's the same Greek word that's used here in 2 Corinthians to compel. And it's the same word that Jesus used in Luke chapter 12 and verse 50 when he said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed, how distressed I am till it has been accomplished. That word distressed is the same word compel. It's the same word hard pressed. And what it literally means is to be hemmed in. It means to be uh, so constrained that you can't even turn around. Have you ever been in a, in a position, have you ever been in a situation where uh, the, the passageway was so narrow that you couldn't even turn around? I was once. Nancy and I had taken the family up to Branson, Missouri, and there is a cave, an underground cave, uh, that uh, said, y'all got to go see this. Well, I didn't think I had to, but we did anyway. They said that the, the grand room in this cave is large enough that you could fit the Statue of Liberty. You could stand the Statue of Liberty upright and it wouldn't even touch the ceiling. And I thought, well, okay, i got to see that. They said it was beautiful. They said it was wonderful to behold. And I thought, okay, wonderful. But you had to get there first. And one of the passageways to get to that grand room was this narrow. And the roof of that passageway was this high. Or at least it seemed to me. But it was so narrow that as I walked this way, this shoulder touched this wall and this shoulder touched that wall. And I thought I was going to die. It scared me to death. When Jesus said that we should enter into the narrow gate, for narrow is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to life. The gate that he was talking about, the word that he used to describe narrow was that you can barely fit through it. You can't take anything with you. You have to push yourself through. That's the word constrained. That's the word hard-pressed. That's the word distressed. Today we would say that the Apostle Paul was staunchly focused. Jesus was staunchly focused. Hemmed in, narrowed in held together. 
It was Jesus' understanding of his Father's will for his life that kept him focused on the cross. That nothing could deter him from going to Jerusalem. Nothing could deter him from turning his life over to the elders. Nothing could deter him from going to the cross and being crucified. He was focused on the goal of God's will for his life. To give himself a sacrifice for us. In Luke chapter 9 verse 51... The gospel reads, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem. These words are emphatic. These words are strong words in the gospel. Jesus was intently fixed in his purpose to give himself an atoning sacrifice for us. And the apostle encourages the same for you and for me. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, he writes, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, our sights firmly fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God in glory. All of these words here that describe Jesus are words of intent, words that are strong, that, that reveal the heart of Christ, that reveal the attitude of Christ. Nothing could deter him from going to the cross for you and for me. The overwhelming love of Jesus Christ for Paul gave him his focus in life, pushed him forward in ministry and held him together when people rejected him, when people rejected the gospel that he preached. Nothing deterred Paul from it. Not the hatred of the Jews, not the indifference of the Gentiles, not the rejection or opposition or the persecution. Absolutely nothing could keep him quiet when it came to the preaching and the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once he was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. His focus in life was to lay hold of Jesus Christ each and every day. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 and following. Philippians 3, verse 4 and following. A rather lengthy passage of Scripture here, but it is noteworthy. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. In other words, Paul said, I had my act together. Once I started down the road to being a disciple of, of the Jews, Gamaliel, and the other leaders of the Jewish faith, once I set my sight on becoming a member of the sect of the Pharisees and maybe even become a, a member of the Sanhedrin, the high council of rulers over the Jews, once I set my sight on that, nothing could stop me from becoming the best I could possibly be as a member of the Jewish faith. Nothing could deter. But then again, he says in verse 7, What things were gained to me, these I've counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him. 
Paul said, I gave all of that stuff up. All of my achievements, all of my accomplishments, all of my advancements, I gave it all up. For what? That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already attained, verse 12. Not that I've already attained or am already perfect, perfected, but I press on a very strong word here. I pursue with every fiber of my being. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Let me boil it down to you into its bare essence. Paul is saying this, in life, nothing matters to me than Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters to me than Jesus Christ. I want to know Him. I want to fellowship with Him in His sufferings. I want to know the power of His resurrection in my life. For me to live is Christ. Nothing else matters. Nothing else is worth my attention or my concern. Nothing else has grabbed me and laid hold of me like the love of Jesus Christ has grabbed me and laid hold of me. And I want to give the rest of my life laying hold of Him. Loving Him. Obeying Him, following Him, living for Him, suffering for Him, and yes, even dying for Him. That is my life, Paul said. As a boy, I remember Grandpa Martin getting up early in the morning to milk the cows. He would bring the pails of raw milk into the kitchen. My mother would let the milk sit until the cream in the raw milk would rise to the top. She would then scoop the rich cream off the milk and set it aside to churn into butter or to use in baking or in other things that she would make in the kitchen. When you think about your faith, when you consider your Christian life, what is the cream that rises to the top? What is that which has enriched your life that rises to the top of all that you are and all that you've done. What motivates you in life? What gets you out of bed in the morning? For the Apostle Paul, it was this clear and yet concise statement branded in his heart, in his mind, and in his spirit, for to me, to live is Christ. Some people aspire to be good churchmen, church statesmen. Some people aspire to be faithful stewards of the resources of God. Some people aspire to be a loyal disciple of Reverend Dr. So-and-so. Paul lived and breathed Jesus Christ. That was it. How is that so? What's the principle behind this? Why aren't all Christians like this. 
Turn one more time in your Bible to Galatians chapter 2. You're going to turn left to Galatians chapter 2. One of my favorite passages of Scripture. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Ten years earlier from Paul writing this letter to the Philippians, ten years earlier, while in Corinth, Paul wrote a letter to the churches of the province of Galatia. And in that letter he rebuked them for having turned away from the gospel of Jesus Christ and for following after false doctrine. He was amazed, he was shocked that so soon they had left off their discipline, their spiritual discipline in Jesus Christ and gone off, uh, gone off the rails believing false doctrine, opinions of men. He also revealed in that letter the impetus, the truth that compelled him to live for Christ. It's found in verse 20. Notice what he says here. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How does a person live for Christ? He dies to self. He dies to sin. He dies to the flesh. He dies to the world. You cannot live for Christ and live for self. You cannot live for Christ and live for the world. To be crucified is to die. It's not to dedicate. It's not to consecrate. It's not to commend. It's not to make a promise. Uh uh. To be crucified is to die. Many of us have not come to that point in our Christian lives yet. And that's why we continue to stub our spiritual toes day in and day out trying to live for Christ. If I may quote the great theologian Yoda, do or don't do, there is no try. And the same is true in your Christian life, my friend. We do not try to live for Jesus. We either live for Jesus or we don't live for Jesus. But I try and I can't. It's because you haven't come to that point in your life that Paul had to come to in his life when he said, I am crucified with Christ. I have died to self. I have died to the flesh. I have died to the world. And now it is Christ who lives in me. We believe and we trust in Jesus our, as our Savior, but it's the Lord part that we struggle with, eh? Huh? We are satisfied in our heart and in our thinking that Jesus died on the cross to save us. But dear friends, He died on the cross as our Lord as well. And as He rose again, He rose as our Lord and our Savior. We believe and trust in Jesus as Savior, but we struggle with the Lord part. Paul didn't. He gave up everything to pursue Jesus. Notice what he said. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also counted all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. When a person dies to self, then he can live 
for Jesus. Rather, when he dies to self, then Jesus can live fully in him or in her. That individual becomes insensitive. Listen, he becomes insensitive to the world and the things of the world. Did you hear me? He becomes, she becomes insensitive to the world, to the things of the world. One of the things that has so captured our thinking and has captured our spirit and has mixed up our emotions is what's going on in the world. That's all we want to talk about. We want to talk about what the governor's doing and what he's not doing. We want to talk about what the president is doing and what he's not doing. We want to talk about what Congress is doing and what they're not doing. We want to talk about what's going on over here and what's going on over there. What people are saying about this and that and the other. We never talk about Jesus. We talk about everything else. But when a person dies to self, he becomes insensitive to the things of the world. They don't matter to him anymore. He becomes insensitive to the flesh. He becomes insensitive to the devil, to the personal ambition, to the love of material things, to the pride and the pomp and the glam and the glitter of life. He becomes insensitive to all of those things. The power of evil and hateful passions don't matter anymore. Those things lose their power over the person. They cease to influence him because it is now Christ who has taken up residence in the person's heart and mind and spirit and life. No one can serve two masters, Jesus said in Matthew 6 verse 24. No two kings can sit on the same throne at the same time. No two presidents can occupy the White House together. No two lords can reign in the life of the Christian. For me to live is Christ, Paul declared. What is it you declare in your life? In 1917, Thomas Chisholm wrote these words to one of my most beloved hymns. Nancy and I used to sing it in that little church out in Valla Vista when I was in college. Roger and Kay Meadows introduced us to this song 40 years ago. And it has stuck with me. And we love the song because it is so true. He wrote, Living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please Him in all that I do, yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free. This is the pathway of blessing for me. O oh, Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to Thee, for Thou in Thine atonement didst give Thyself for me. I own no other master. My heart shall be thy throne. My life I give henceforth to live. O Christ, for thee alone. Stand with me. As David leads us in a song and as we pray. Tim. Tim, Tim, would you put in living for Jesus, please? Thank you, Teresa, living for Jesus. It's one thing to hear those words. It's another from the heart to let them rise in praise of our Lord and Savior. Living for Jesus, Yeah. Mm -hmm.
Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ that he would live his life and give his life so that we who are dead in trespasses and sins could live for him. We thank you for the gospel that has the power to capture the mind, heart, and spirit, radically alter one's life so that Jesus can shine through us and reach out to others who have yet to know him. I pray, Father, your blessing upon us as we leave the building and as we go to the time of fellowship. The Lord God, we would be as the Apostle Paul. We would ask, Lord Jesus, bring me to the cross that I might die and that you might live in me so that from this point on until you call us home we can say honestly with the Apostle Paul for me to live is Christ thank you for our time of fellowship which is to follow. Thank you for the food. Bless it to our nourishment. Thank you for the hands that have prepared it. Bless the fellowship together that it might be pleasing in your sight. And all of God's people said, Amen. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on Him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to Him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org. Thank you.